So John, there we go, uh, chapter 17 is where we'll be today. And the first verse says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Back in chapter 13, we have this verse, chapter 13, verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. And then this leads into Jesus washing the disciples' feet in what we call the Last Supper. And that ushers in this whole section that we've been looking at over the last several weeks called the Farewell Discourse where Jesus has been doing some final teaching. We've had focus on the Holy Spirit. And uh, chapter 15 was about abiding in the true vine and so forth. Um, now we're up to chapter 17, and it is very close. Uh, these will be some of the last words that Jesus says to his disciples before the cross. Now, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, their final prayers that are recorded is the prayer in the garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, where we, we uh, picture Jesus uh, really um, from a very human side of things, looking toward the cross and, you know, not my will but thine, Lord, that sort of um, uh, attitude. Here we have uh, a very higher level of... Um, uh, if, if the garden prayer focuses more from the perspective of, of his humanity, I think it's very clear in chapter 17 that we have the focus on uh, Jesus uh, and his divinity because you see this high-level overview where he has in extremely clear focus uh, why he came, uh, what he came to do, and, and how he's... Um, uh, going to basically say farewell and, and offer this prayer. Uh, in my Bible, uh, I use the ESV. It's, uh, you know, sometimes they put um, titles on, on particular chapters. Mine says the high priestly prayer, which it's often called. Uh, chapter 17 is, is a prayer of Jesus, and, and it's called the high priestly prayer in my Bible. Some people call it the prayer of consecration. There are dozens of names that people have used to label this. Um, the high priestly tone comes from the fact that um, we know Jesus as uh, intercessor uh, between uh, us and, and God. Um, and um, uh, Romans 8.34 says, Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Hebrews, of course, talks a lot about this. Uh, Hebrews 7.25 says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Uh, so because there's tones of, of Jesus uh, connecting uh, the people on earth and God, uh, it gets this label the high priestly prayer. But you'll see that it really goes beyond that. Um, but... If people talk about the high priestly prayer, at least you'll know where they're talking about, even though that may be a bit limiting. I, I will say this, though. One of the roles of the priest was to intercede on behalf of the people. But the other, or one of the other roles of the priest was to 
uh, prepare the sacrifice uh, to take uh, what would have been the unblemished lamb, pray and consecrate that lamb, um, set aside that lamb for the sacrifice. So that's why some people call this the prayer of consecration because Jesus is basically um, setting himself aside, consecrating himself to this final purpose, which of course is moving toward the cross. So back to verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, so we have this clear connection with everything that's been happening these last several chapters, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. Now, it's interesting when here and basically, you know, the Bible Belt and, and probably in evangelical churches uh, throughout the world, um, when we pray, what do we do? We bow our heads and we do what? We close our eyes. Um, there is actually much more biblical support for lifting up your eyes to heaven in this sort of a posture with hands lifted and raised uh, in the Bible than there is for bowing. Um, half the time that you hear bowing uh, talked about in Scripture, it's bowing before um, a worldly king or something like that. There are some reference, references to um, you know, falling prostrate before the Lord and so forth. But it seems that the norm was to lift up your eyes toward heaven and pray. So much so that you'll recall uh, in Luke, one of the evidences of the deep humility of the tax collector was when he said, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Um, so it was, it was remarkable that he didn't lift up his eyes and so forth. Uh, I, tried to, I tried to figure out, you know, when did this, we'll call it a tradition, that's basically what it is, of bowing your heads. Uh, sometimes we, were, you know, we would fold our hands, you know, perhaps in Sunday school, uh, and close our eyes. Um, some people think it probably started back in medieval days where, you know, if you came before the king, you would kneel and, and bow out of um, proper protocol and, and reverence, and that this got somehow assimilated into the church. So the point is, it's much more important the posture of your heart, um, but the posture of your, of your body, uh, as long as it's consistent with that, uh, I don't think God cares. Um, I often pray going down the road, and, and you'll be pleased to know that I don't close my eyes. Um, <laughs> They're pretty much straight ahead. Uh, I think God can handle it. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. We know that throughout the Gospels, we find Jesus talking to his disciples and something comes up and he says, Nope, not my time yet. Don't publicize this. My hour has not yet come. That sort of thing. Now the hour has certainly come. So here we have Jesus and it's more than this, but you could say in this first, people differ on how you divide it, but the first five to eight verses, uh, Jesus is basically praying about himself. Uh, the next section, he will pray specifically for the remaining disciples. And then the last section, he's praying for us. So if you think about this chapter, you can think in those chunks of scripture. So he says, if 
Father, the hours come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Uh, we saw uh, back in John chapter 6, it said, uh, But I said to you that you have seen me and yet don't believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and will raise him up on the last day. Um, one commentator, if I can find it, you know, this this concept of um, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him um, definitely falls within the sovereignty of God thing and we've talked about so many times, including when we looked at John 6, that um, this concept of believing in God's sovereignty and his election of us and his choice of us and believing in our free will and our choosing of him, uh, one commentator clearly said, what is my position, that I believe both of those things, and I don't have a problem that it's hard to mesh them. Um, again, I'm, I'm okay with a God who knows more than I do. Verse 3, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is eternal life, that they know you. Uh, some people who go out in left field, so to speak, um, key in on this word about knowing God, that you can somehow uh, become so enlightened about God that this ushers you into a relationship with him. Um, that's not really what this means, right? We know that demons believe in God and know that God is real. Uh, these words, know, this includes... Um, a salvific relationship with God. Uh, you can't truly know God. We can't truly know God unless we have that relationship with the Son, right? So this encompasses all of salvation. That's who he's talking about. This isn't some cerebral thing. It's all of who we are, and that's how we have eternal life. Verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So, uh, a pretty clear statement of uh, divinity. Uh, who else but God could say, I want my glory back like I had before, before the world existed? I think that's a pretty clear statement there. And it, it does make you think, um, for those years that he was on earth how incredibly difficult it would have been to, to not have the glory that you had been used to in eternity past it's crazy to think about um, but there we have it glorify me in your own presence and he goes on as we'll say that the reason 
the very reason that Jesus is asking for his glory back is so that he can glorify the Father more. This intimate relationship between Father and Son you'll see there as we go along. And and I'll also mention people have, have brought uh, forth that the Holy Spirit is not really talked about much in this. It's a father-son conversation here. But remember, one of the roles of the Holy Spirit was to bring to mind all the things that he had taught. So we probably wouldn't even have this passage here had not the Holy Spirit brought it to John's mind in the detail that it needed to be there. And of course, this whole passage has been talking about uh, the work of the Spirit, which will go forth uh, in the disciples. But uh, don't get... Don't get stumbled on that. Verse 6. These are what one commentator called saddle verses. Um, If you look at a mountain range, um, sometimes you'll see a mountain and then you'll see another mountain. And you'll see this little shallow dip between them, but it doesn't go all the way back down to the valley. So this is a a saddle. And he calls these saddle verses because we don't don't fully leave the topic. Uh, We're just transitioning between the two. So one commentator puts six verses 6 through 8 in there because uh, he's talking about his work on earth but he's also transitioning to that work with disciples and you'll see that verse 6 I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world yours they were and you gave them to me and they have kept your word now they know that everything that you have given me is from you for I have given them the words that you gave me and they have received them and, and have come to know in truth that I came from you and that they have believed that you sent me. He's referring to the disciples here. Now, did he forget how messed up and spiritually immature they still were? No. Did he forget that he is going to be denied by Peter um, just hours from now? Uh, No. But he is, he is seeing that they have come to really know him um, and uh, in this uh, relationship of, of being believers, so to speak. And it says, they know that I came from you. They have believed that you have sent me. So he's looking at them with um, future eyes, you might say. And the fact that Jesus could look at his fumbling, imperfect disciples who he knew were going to disappoint him before long, but he could still present them to God as if they were blameless and righteous. That is a great picture of what he does for us, right? So when Satan comes along to whisper in your ear about how horrible you are, your answer can be, Yes, but God sees me as righteous because he sees the righteousness of Christ, not the dirtiness of my yet-to-be-fully-sanctified self. So if Jesus can do it for the disciples, he can definitely see us that way as well. And that's what this is portraying. Verse 9, he says, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. This is interesting, right? Now, does this mean that Jesus doesn't care about the world? No. What's John 3.16 say? 
For God so loved the world. Right? Scripture says, I would that, that everyone would be saved. But we know that's not going to happen. And we know that there is, again, in the mystery of God, there are going to be those who choose him and those that aren't. And God elects. And that whole process is happening. The point is, he is specifically praying for the safety, the preservation, the ongoing uh, ministry of these disciples because he knows that they've still got work to do. One commentator, as we go through these verses, he says he prays for several things. He prays for their unity. He prays for their sustenance and strength. And he prays for their holiness. And you'll see this as we go along. Verse 10. All mine are yours and yours are mine. I am glorified in them and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. To think that the same bond, the same type of relationship that Jesus could have with the Father is the same bond and the same type of relationship that he is wishing for the disciples to have for each other. That's pretty amazing, right? That is pretty amazing. Verse 12. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. This is a, there's several times that the, that the concept of God's name shows up in this passage. But in scripture, so much was wrapped up in the name of God, right? We go back to Moses. The very introduction that he had was the I am. When God revealed himself to Moses, it was through the power of his name. So brought into that concept of the name of God is his power, his nature, his eternity, all of that wrapped up. So when Jesus says, Holy Father, keep them in your name. What an amazing request for Jesus to make on behalf of his disciples that they would receive the benefit of everything that is about God because that's what his name is about. Verse 12, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. Not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. So when he called the 12, he didn't make a mistake with Judas. He was there for a reason. that the scripture might be fulfilled. Verse 13. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. There was an interesting passage. Let's see if I can find it.
might find that later, but there was a passage, I think it was back in Luke, where it says Jesus was alone and started to pray, and his disciples were there. So he was alone, but his disciples were there. And as he's praying, and, you know, totally focused on God, the disciples are there. So they're hearing all this, right? So, so much is, is modeled here. Um, growing up as, you know, you pray around the dinner table with your kids, or when they go to bed, you know, um, you're not praying to your kids, you're praying to God, but they're there. And they see what goes on, and 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 they 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 catch it. And here we have um, Jesus praying intimately to God the Father about his disciples, but the disciples are there. So there's this, you know, extra thing that's happening here, not just that Jesus is interceding and not just that Jesus is consecrating, but to the very last, Jesus is still teaching. He is still um, modeling for them what's going to happen. So when they talk about the Lord's Prayer, you know, a lot of times people call it the model prayer, which is what you have back in Matthew, what we call the Lord's Prayer. But this is really the Lord's Prayer right here uh, that he is modeling for them. Um, one of my favorite movies uh, is The Book of Eli. Um, Denzel Washington, who I, I'm starting to think might actually be a believer. I don't know, but... Um, the Book of Eli is a great movie. He kills all the bad guys, somewhat viciously, I should add. Um, but he spends the whole time backpacking, which I like. And it's all while he's reading the Bible. I mean, it, it's just got all the right themes for me. But there's a section there where um, the bad guys are trying to tempt him with this young woman. And instead, he invites her to share a meal and shows her what it means to pray. That she's never seen before. And the next scene you see about her, she does the same with her mom because she saw him do it. It's, it's a great movie as far as Hollywood goes. Verse 13. But now I am coming to you. These things I speak to the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Think about list the disciples hearing all this, what Jesus is actually praying for them. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So we talked about their purpose. Here's, he's saying protect them. Um, verse 16, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. This consecrate myself, this is him setting himself apart for the work on the cross. Because it's only through the work of the cross that they are going to be sanctified fully. That's our hope. Because of his work on the cross, then we can be looking forward to that full sanctification as well. So that's his specific prayer for the disciples and the work that they were going to have to do. The last section, which I'll launch into. Um, there may be leftovers next week. We'll see. Verse 20. 
I do not ask for these only, but catch this, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's the church. That's us. This next passage is where Jesus is praying for us. What does he pray? Verse 21, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Our theme verse had been, these things were written that you might believe, right? That was John's theme verse. Turns out it's Jesus' theme verse for us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. Verse 23, I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. There's some repetition here. There's, you know, some recurrent themes. Father, you and I are one. I want them to have that same thing. Um, I came here for a purpose. They have a purpose. I mean, you see these themes over and over. Verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Lord, I want them to see heaven. I can't wait to show them what coming home is going to be like. You fixed up a special room. You fixed up your house. The party is ready. And you can't wait to show them Not that you're bragging, but just because you know it's going to be such a happy time for them. That's what Jesus is praying for us. Verse 24. Our desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you had given me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And those... And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name. There is that again. And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. How many times does he have to say it? Now, he wants us to be one, right? What does that mean for the people who call themselves Christians? Why is it that we can all look so different? And I don't just mean physically, but there are a lot of different flavors out there, way more than Baskin Robbins. And I'll joke sometimes, I'll meet somebody in the office and they'll make some comment that makes me know that they're a believer and I'll say, well, what flavor are you? (laughs) And it's amazing almost everybody knows what I'm asking. They'll say, well, I'm Presbyterian or I'm Baptist. or Everybody knows. I think it's kind of hilarious. Even though it's kind of a weird way to ask it, they all know that there are different flavors. Um, Jesus is not saying that we have to be 
uniformity in appearance, uh, but there need to be unity. And one commentator, I think, really put it best. It said, you can't have unity like this without unity in the, the mission, right? So think about it. Picture, I think somebody just won the Iditarod dog race not too long ago, right? All those dogs are pulling in the same direction. They're on the same team. If you had a dog that was pulling at 90 degrees to the pack, he's not on your team. He would be cut loose. So anybody, I don't care what their flavor is, but they, if they believe in Jesus and the only way to get rid of your sin is to look at his work on the cross and you believe in God the Father, God the Son, God, God the Holy Spirit, you can nail it down to just a few elements and if that's your team, then okay, I can pull with them because they've got the same mission. I don't care if they speak in tongues. I don't care if they, I don't care a lot of, a lot of things, but I do care about those basics. And that's the point. Are they on the same mission? I've got some people I have quibbles about, but I also see there's some souls being saved. We all are going to have to have our rough edges worked on but there are also people that we that may claim to be Christians that are not on this team right we know from elsewhere in scripture there are wolves out there so we have to watch them. we have to be careful but here we have this wonderful prayer this has to do with purpose it has to do with keeping the main thing the main thing right uh, it's it's beautiful. They're probably leftovers. I've, I'm kind of running short, but anything anybody wants to say uh, to help wrap this up? All right. Um, like I said, there may be some leftovers uh, I may need to get to, but uh, uh, we're moving to the cross, and um, Jesus cares deeply about what we're doing right now to help people understand what he did and in those days what he was about to do. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus through whom all of this has come about. We thank you that through his consecrated, set-aside fulfillment of his purpose that we can be part of this group that we can share in that oneness and that we can get a taste of the glory that we have yet to fully realize we thank you that you see us as righteous and pray that you would continue to work with us as we try to be your hands and feet going forward in Jesus name, Amen thanks everybody